All right. Good morning. We are going to begin a new series on the book of 1 John. Because as I was thinking about what we need to be discussing as a congregation, what we need to be applying as a congregation, the word that keeps coming to mind is fellowship. Because we're trying to really apply the biblical principles of fellowship in a way that I feel like a lot of churches don't. And so 1 John is the go-to book on fellowship. And so there may be a time where we kind of take a break from 1 John. It's not a really long book, but if we really want to dissect it, digest it, we may take a break after a few sermons in this book, but we're going to be here for at least a little bit because I think it's something that the Lord's lead me to share with y'all. So we're going to be in 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, and you got your notes in front of you. The title of this series, whenever we get finished with it, is called Fellowship Divine, God's Blueprint for Otherworldly Joy. And yesterday, as we were at the baseball field, and I looked around at all these people, all these people cheering on their kids, playing the game, it just kind of was surreal for me. I wondered how many of these people know Jesus, how many of these people know Jesus, but they're not really thinking in terms of God's kingdom and the coming of Christ the second time? Like, are they thinking about these things? And maybe it was just one of those moments where, you know, I, I got a little OCD, but it was just a thought that stuck with me that we need to be thinking in terms of divine fellowship all the time. Tell me, what are you noticing? The fellowship of the ring and the five points. You, uh, really? There's a connection there? I'm just saying. Weren't there five rings? I, I, was there? No, there was more than that. There was more. You haven't even seen it, have you, Christy? <laughs> no, the, I'm not even going to go into that. I could I could recite the, the prologue of the whole movie, but I'm not going to do that because our, our hearers don't want to listen to Lord of the Rings. Uh, <laughs> but as far as, as far as the fellowship part, I just think that as we feel the imminency of the rapture, I feel it. Uh, I try not to be too sensational, emotional, but I really do believe that when we look at the world around us, we th see things coming together and it's exciting, but it's also, it's also a little intimidating because I want our group, I want us as individuals to make as much of an impact as we can while we have the time to make it. And so, anyways, prefacing the sermon with all that, the first part of this series is called The Fellowship's Design. And so this is a really awesome passage. It's another one of those prologue passages uh, we've looked at, 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, other really big passages uh, that we've looked at that kind of summarize doctrine. We looked at Romans 10. Uh, John 1 is a superb place that summarizes doctrine for us. These are good passages of scripture to memorize, but first John chapter one is like that. And so it's easily divided up into these points. And so I'm just going to run through them real quick. And uh, then we're going to look at each one, one by one. So the fellowship that we are part of as Christians is metaphysical, which that's going to be interesting to talk about. Essentially, that's a fancy word for supernatural. And this fellowship that we're a part of has a mystery to it that we still after a million years in heaven, after a trillion years of heaven, we're not going to understand completely. And so that's exciting. The second thing is this fellowship is historical. And so it's something that's confirmed physically by eyewitnesses. 
John being one of them. Uh, this fellowship is experiential. And so it's something that's not just based on evidence. It's based on our personal interaction with the Lord. The next point is purposeful. And so the fellowship that we're a part of gives us meaning. So God gives us something to do. He doesn't just bring us into the family and say, all right, well, enjoy your stay. He gives us a purpose, something to accomplish in our lives. And then lastly, this fellowship is humble. And so even while we go through our Christian walk and we understand these points and there's an elation from, hey, we're part of this amazing fellowship. We have this awesome relationship with God. At the same time, we have to be humble because we came from a different place than the one we're in now. You know, we, we came from a background of sin and condemnation and there's things that we still struggle with from that old life. And so that's something that we'll wrap things up with. But starting in verse number one, John chapter or first John chapter one, verse one, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And so just like John chapter 1, John, same author, he has this concept of the Logos, which translated is the Word. And so Jesus is called the Word who was with God and who was God. And John 1, 1 here, and 1 John 1, 1, he's called the Word of Life. And so this book is going to be a book not about receiving life. It's about enjoying that life. So getting the abundance out of the gift that we have. And so while John, the gospel is about encouraging people to enter into a relationship with Jesus, and it's very evangelistic, at the very end he says, these things were written so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believe in him, and, and thus believing, receive eternal life. That's that purpose statement. This purpose statement, as you'll see in verse 4, and I'll go ahead and read it, is... These things we write unto you that your joy may be full. So this is written to people who have already received the gift of eternal life. They've already believed in Jesus. They have a relationship. So this is a manual on how to get the most out of that relationship. And so something to talk about, and this is very philosophical, but I find it really interesting, is that the Trinity is the basis of our fellowship with God. And so the first point is that our fellowship being metaphysical, it flows from the eternal and triune nature of God. So the fellowship that we have is an eternal one because Jesus is eternal. In verse one, it says that which was from the beginning. This is talking about the word of life. The word of life is Jesus. So since he's from the beginning and he's eternal, when we receive him, we have eternal life. So this fellowship that we have is eternal. It's everlasting. We're not eternal in the same way God is, obviously. I mean, we have a beginning, but there will be no ending to our life with God. That's what it means when it speaks of eternal life. It lasts forever. And it's triune. This fellowship that we're a part of is patterned after God. So when we think about why did God create, what's his purpose in creating? God obviously didn't have anything missing in him that he needed to fulfill. It's not as if he created us to fill an emptiness in him. That's not why God created. God created out of an abundance. So in this relationship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit from all eternity, there is an overabundance of love. It's like that analogy in Psalm 23, my cup runneth over. And so out of an abundance, it's not a need, 
but out of an abundance to share this love that they were perfectly satisfied with and perfectly sufficient in having, they took that love and they turned it into the world, specifically the people that God put over the world, mankind, those who are made in his image. And so he didn't require us to satisfy a need of love because the Trinity is already perfect. But he created us so that way we could receive of his love. So rather than God needing us, we need him. And so the Trinity is actually something required for the existence of love itself. I wanted to give you a quote. I got a handful of quotes here today, which I thought were really fun and uh, interesting. So the first one is by a guy named William Lane Craig. When it comes to creation in the book of Genesis, I don't recommend William Lane Craig. He is an old earth creationist. However, I do think his ministry has a lot of good in it. And so I recommend uh, his apologetics website, reasonablefaith.org. Um, not when it comes to Genesis. I would recommend a ministry like Answers in Genesis or Institute of Creation Research when it comes to that. But he has a lot of good things to say when it comes to defending the existence of God and a number of other things. But this is what he says. Now, a perfect being must be a loving being, for love is a moral perfection. It is better for a person to be loving than unloving. God, therefore, must be a perfectly loving being. Now, it is the very nature of love to give oneself away. Love reaches out to another person rather than centering wholly in oneself. So if God is perfectly loving by his very nature, he must be giving himself in love to another. But who is that other? It cannot be a created person, since creation is the result of God's free will, not the result of his nature. It belongs to God's very essence to love, but it does not belong to his essence to create. So we can imagine a possible world in which God is perfectly loving and yet no created persons exist. So created persons cannot sufficiently explain whom God loves. It therefore follows that the other to whom God's love is necessarily directed must be internal to God himself. So what he's doing here is he's making an argument from logic, very sound argument, that even apart from scripture, we can make a case for the Trinity just from the fact that God is love. So if God is love, then he must be more than one person. Because in order to love someone else, there has to be at least two persons involved. And so when we think of God being love, in fact, it says in this book, 1 John, God is love. For God to be essentially loving, he has to have a son. But this son has to be eternal. This son can't be a created being. Because then you would have to imagine there was a time when God was alone. And if he was alone, then he would not be loving. So that means that there has to exist eternally a relationship of love within God's nature. And that's why it's necessary for us to think of God in terms of a trinity. Now, of course, the Holy Spirit is not mentioned in this prologue, but the Holy Spirit is mentioned in chapter 5, verse 7. And this is one of those verses that some people have missing from their Bibles, but it belongs there. And it's called the Johannine comma. It's the fancy term for it. But 1 John 5, 7 says this, There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. One of the most amazing statements of the Trinity in the Bible. And I don't think it's a surprise that it's missing from so many versions today. If you're going to attack the Trinity, if you're going to take a verse out of the Bible, that would be one you take out. These three are one. You could formulate 
a creed straight from that single verse. We're not going to go into that today. Uh, we are going to be posting resources on our website. And I know that in one of my PowerPoints, I do talk about that particular verse and the evidence for it. And so if you question the reliability of that verse, because many modern versions, in fact, most modern versions don't have it, then check out those resources on our website. But going back to the point here, our fellowship is metaphysical. God is essentially father and he is also essentially son. And so when God created us, he wants us to be a part of this eternal relationship. We get to be involved. Have y'all ever felt like on the outside of you know, a, a relationship. Like I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of that club. I want to be a part of that group. Well, God created us so that way we could be a part of the love that existed between father, son, and Holy spirit. Now, of course we cannot participate in this in the same sense that they do because we're finite beings while they're infinite beings, but we are patterned after them. So when we think of our purpose, why did we exist in the first place? Why did God make us so many people Think in terms of, okay, well, God just created us because of his glory. And, and sadly, when people think of God's glory, they think of it solely in terms of, okay, God needs us to honor him. He needs us to praise him. And so he created us to do that. So he basically needs an audience and that audience needs to be giving him worship and he needs that. So that's why he made us. And you know what? We should give God that worship. I worship God and no one else. However, God doesn't need us to acknowledge his glory. Okay. He, it's not as if God said, man, I just feel like we need to create some people to bow down before us. Okay. That's not why God created us. That's how honestly some people think though, when they say God made us for his glory, his glory is part of his nature. Now what is in his nature? Love. So how are we glorifying God when we are loving God back He's glorified when he gives us love and we reciprocate that love right back. And when we take that love and we reflect it to those around us, that's God's glory. So God's glory isn't just bowing down so many times a day, saying so many prayers a time a day. It's a relationship. I mean, after all, what, what glorifies me? What satisfies me when it comes to my relationship with my kids? Is it just them going through the motions and being wooden in their obedience towards me, doing so many chores, or is it loving me as I love them, returning that love? That is what gives me satisfaction more than anything else. And that's why God made us. And so the first part is that our fellowship is metaphysical. Now, the second is historical. So this really, guys, is a great uh, sermon to sort of summarize the theology and the apologetics of the Christian faith. So the Trinity, one of the most essential, the most essential doctrine of the Christian faith is up front in this text. And then it goes on and it talks about how the Trinity, God became manifest to us. And so this is where the philosophical becomes historical. And so number two is that it is objective. Our fellowship is. It's objective based on eyewitness accounts. So this guy who's writing this is one who was there and saw it. He says, and I repeat, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested. This life that was eternal and triune was hidden from us, but was manifested to us. And we've seen it. We bear witness and we show unto you that eternal life, which was with the father and was manifest unto us. Jesus is seen here as eternal life being sent down as a gift from the father. The son carries from heaven with him our life, our everlasting life. And in verse three, it says it again, if it's not repeated enough, <laughs> verse three wraps everything up with even more terms here about perception, 
that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that you may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. So John is saying, I saw this invisible reality of an eternal God who's triune. I saw him manifested. I heard him speak. I looked upon him physically. I handled him with my hands. We're talking about a person here. We're not talking about an abstract concept. This supernatural God became real to us physically in our visible world. And I was there and I'm here to tell you about it so you can have fellowship with God too. Obviously these people have already believed in Christ for everlasting life, but he's going back to these basic truths that they needed to be reminded of just as we all need to be reminded of them. So that way we can really look at the world around us and say, what's worth living for? What is worth living for? There comes times in many Christians' lives where we get distracted, right? And we're not thinking in terms of God and his kingdom and the, the love that we have for other Christians. We get distracted by so many other things that are trying to grab our attention. Some of those things aren't necessarily bad, but when they become priorities over our relationship with God and his church and his family, that's when they become a problem. And so he's saying, we need to be reminded of these basic truths so that way we can have fellowship with God. We got to go back to the beginning. That's something I see a lot in the New Testament. And so our fellowship is objective. And while I'm not going to give y'all a case for the resurrection today, again, the resources that we're putting online, I've got a lot of stuff on there about the resurrection. Uh, We got stuff about prophecy and science and the Bible and all this stuff. And I'd encourage you to check it out. The Shroud of Turin, I I have some PowerPoint slides about that. They're going to be posted on the website soon. But all this information, guys... um, is there available to you. But the main point I'm just trying to drive home is our faith is not one that is completely and entirely based on our emotions. If it was, then how could we appeal to somebody and say, this is truth? We couldn't do that. I mean, we couldn't go around and say, hey, listen, you need to believe what I'm saying because I feel this way. They'd say, well, you know, that's just your opinion. So what? But we can say, look, this is metaphysical. This is logically demanded. Okay? The existence of a God is logically demanded. That he's a trinity is logically demanded. And all of this stuff isn't just abstract pie in the sky, but it became real to us physically and visibly when Jesus came down, died on the cross, and rose again. And we have evidence for that straight from an eyewitness's mouth here. Now, in verse 4, we move on to the third point, which is yes, okay? Our fellowship is experiential. I'm not downplaying that. I just hope that everybody understands this listening, that our faith rests on a rock-solid foundation, and my feelings are not that foundation. If my feelings were the foundation for the Christian faith, I wouldn't be very confident in it. I would need something more beyond me that I could ground my faith to. But of course, you don't just build a foundation and leave it, right? You build a house upon the foundation. And so my experience in faith is built upon something other than that, other than that experience. And so number three, our fellowship is subjective. It is based on faith. Now I'm going to give you another quote, two other quotes actually. Uh, and I skipped this one accidentally. When we're talking about the historical proof for the Christian faith, Blaise Pascal, he was a French philosopher and I love this guy's stuff. Um, a lot of people classify him as what you call a fideist, which says that, you know, 
our salvation, our, our belief in God stands upon just our faith and you don't need anything else. And I think that that is a caricature of what Fideism says. You have people over here that emphasize more faith and people over here that emphasize more evidence. They have the apologetics ministries. They're in the debates all the time. And they, they both come together and have insights to give. But Blaise Pascal, he said these words, and this doesn't sound like a guy who just says, believe it, you know, blind faith. He says, I only believe in histories told by witnesses who would have had their throats slit. I only believe in histories told by witnesses who would have had their throats slit. So he's saying this history that we have in the gospel that's represented by this text today, it's given by a person who would have had his throat slit. And if we can believe early testimony about John, they attempted to execute him, but it wasn't God's plan. And God kept him safe from that. Instead, he went into exile. And according to also reliable early history that we have available, John didn't die in exile. I've heard that said sometimes, but there's good reason to believe that he actually left exile on Patmos and he died of his old age in Ephesus. And so he would have died in his bed, no doubt surrounded by loved ones. And I think that that was, you know, demonstration of God's approval. On John the Bap or uh, John's not John the Baptist on John's life, but uh, talking about our experience, Blaise Pascal also said the heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. The heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. So he's not saying obviously that he discounts reason. I mean, he just talked about histories that are trustworthy because people are willing to die for it. Okay, that's definitely based on logic. But he's saying that beyond the logic. Beyond the history, beyond the evidence, beyond that foundation and built upon it is this relationship that we have with God. And I can tell you what, that while I'm, I'm very much appreciative of apologetics ministries, there is a point where you have to wade in deeper and you have to invest in your own relationship with God. And you can't be constantly tossed to and fro on the waves of doubt and questions. And, and that is, again, something that the Holy Spirit guides us in. And as our counselor, he's there to speak truth into our hearts, even when we have our doubts, even when those, those foundational truths seem shaky, because maybe we've heard a debate and the atheist made a good case, or we've heard something before and someone overturns that. We know in the back of our mind, the evidence is there, but in those moments, our emotions can really be a, be a war within us. And so we have to decide in those moments to push forward in faith, hand in hand with the Holy Spirit. And it is a dark time. It, it is. I've been in places like that myself. But when you do that, you always come out on the other side. And again, I appreciate the evidence. It helped me through a hard time. But there have been times in my life where the evidence really wasn't what I needed. What I needed was that still small whisper of God in my life. And I got that through prayer and reading scripture and being around Christians and seeing God at work. I didn't find that on an apologetics website or in a book. And so our experience is very, very important. Um, number four, our fellowship is purposeful and it resides in truth and righteousness. Our purpose resides, our fellowship with God resides in truth and in righteousness. In verse five, John says, this then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. So now it's really where the rubber meets the road here. I mean, he's talked about God, his existence, the Trinity, 
the historical evidence. He's talked about how we can have joy in our relationship with God. But now he says, this is your purpose. This is how you get it. If you want to have full joy, which is possible for you now that you've been saved, you have to be in the light walking with God. And what does light represent? Well, light represents truth and light represents righteousness, both of those things. And so we have to be doctrinally renewing our mind, seeing things biblically according to God's authority and not man's authority. But it's not dry orthodoxy. It's also taking what we read in scripture, trusting in it according to God's authority and applying it to our lives. So that way we are looking different progressively. This is called sanctification. So the people that he's writing to here, they've already been justified. He doesn't ever say, you need to believe in Jesus and be saved. He's writing to save people. But sanctification is basically where after we receive the free gift, God said, okay, now there's something I want you to do. You're not saved by doing this. You're not saved by walking in the light. But I didn't save you. I didn't make this investment in you just so you can stay where you're at because I love you too much for that. It's not that God is like this person who owns a business and says, I need you to provide me with work because I need your work. Okay. He's saying, I love you. I gave you this free gift out of love. And now I need you to listen to me because that's as far as you can go. If you want to go further, okay, you have to walk in the light. Salvation is free. I came all the way your way and gave you that. And now I expect you to walk in the light with me. And of course, when you get saved, you want to do that. There is a part of you, a new nature that you receive when you're born again. You want to be in the light because the light's a good place to be. It's a sunny day outside. Y'all like basking in the sun? I love basking in the sun. Okay. You don't like, I don't like baking in the sun either. (laughs) Yeah. We don't like the mosquitoes either, but we like the light and As a Christian, we have a desire for it. So he's saying now, if you want to be sanctified, if your joy is going to be full, you have to spend time in the light. Okay, but when you're spending time in the light, something happens. Okay, and this is where it gets even more interesting, starting in verse number seven. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us, cleanseth us, King James there, from all sin. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. Notice that right there in verse seven, it says, when we're walking in the light, we are cleansed. When we walk in the light, we are cleansed. That means that we are not completely free of defilement. Now, this isn't talking about people who are working for their salvation. Jesus in John 13, he said to the disciples that they needed to have their feet washed. And... He also said in the same context that they were already clean and there are different words used in the text, one for the foot washing and another, which literally means a bath. One who's had a bath, okay, after they've been bathed, if they go out and about in the world and they come back home, the only thing that they need to wash at that point is their feet. And so that was the custom back then. So he's saying when you're in the world as a cleansed, saved person, you're going to pick up dirt on your feet. And so the way that you cleanse yourself, or rather the blood of Jesus cleanses you, okay, is by walking in the light. So as you're walking in the light, as you're seeking fellowship with God, you're going home every day, metaphorically speaking, and you're having your feet washed by the Lord. And so when we get saved, the cleansing isn't complete. 
Okay, it is eternally as far as our justification is concerned. But again, we have to understand the justification truth and the sanctification truth. As far as our sanctification goes, when you get saved, you got a long way to go. I mean, you're born again, but your life has got a lot of things that need to be cleaned up and changed. And it's not going to all happen overnight. You're not going to go from sinner to saint, practically speaking, in a day. It's going to take time. You got to be in the Word of God. Okay, you got to be praying. You got to invest in your relationship. You got to have fellowship with God, fellowship with the brethren. It says fellowship with one another. You got to be a part of a church. You got to be a part of an assembly, a gathering of believers. And as you do that, you're going to find yourself not only are your sins going to be forgiven, your faults will be forgiven because you're not doing those things and you're, you're walking with the Lord, but you're going to be building upon that foundation and becoming more and more like Christ. And so the idea is, as we build, we don't lose ground. It would be kind of sad, wouldn't it? You're building up your house and you're halfway through. You know, maybe you got the first story built or whatever, and then it collapses. And now we got to start back because you can't build the second floor unless you build the first floor, you know? And so as we're walking in the light, not only are we on good terms with God, okay? We're in fellowship with God, but our life is looking more and more like Jesus. And that is going to affect our fellowship with one another. Yes. Yeah, and a lot of people, I think when you consider the concept here, it's not just, okay, you've got some egregious sin and you stop it and you're forgiven. Okay, yes, obviously that happens in our lives. But it's also things that we're not aware of. Mm -hmm. The way, like we've got bad habits, bad ways of thinking in terms of our relationships with one another. Things maybe we didn't even understand. But now as we're walking in the light, we're looking at ourselves and being like, man, this is a bad habit. I never really saw myself this way, but that's obnoxious. I've got to stop that. I've got to quit treating people that way. I've got to stop thinking about myself that way. Okay, I've got to start trusting in Jesus more in this area of my life. Those are going to be brought in front of us the more we're walking in the light. But there's an error that can happen whenever you're a Christian and you set out to have fellowship with God. And this is the error that's talked about in verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You can get saved, get in church, you're starting out as a baby in Christ, but then you get too big for your britches. And that's what happens with all of us when we're young, doesn't it? We think we know everything. We understand now God and we're living God's way and we look holy because we are holy. And so I think that uh, the John here, he says this because someone might say, oh, okay. So you walk in the light. If you walk in the light, you're not in the darkness. Well, I'm not in the darkness. And he's like, wait a second. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. So there's always going to be a struggle with our sin nature. We can be actively following God in our life, and still we're picking up that dirt. And we have to constantly be humble and honest. And so for your, your notes there, number five, humble, it requires honesty and remembrance. We have to be honest when we're walking in the light. We don't live in denial like he's saying that people can. Now, moving on to uh, number nine, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Of course, this is in the context of walking in the light. So he's saying there are two different kinds of people. There's the person who thinks they're walking in the light. They think they're in fellowship with God, but they're actually walking in the darkness. Okay. And that darkness can very easily creep up on us through self-righteousness, self-righteous behavior. You can be a Pharisee thinking that you're basking in the light of God's mercy and goodness and approval. But in fact, you're walking in the darkness. You don't look anything like him. 
So we have to be humble and honest before God in prayer. We're not downplaying our sins. We are confessing our sins. Okay, we're not lying to ourselves. We're being honest as God speaks truth into our lives. And so if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You notice here that this verse, a lot of people take it out of context and they say this is a salvation verse. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Well, this is not talking about that first time cleansing. Just as in verse 7 when it says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. That is talking about people that are already saved and they are challenged to walk in the light. If you read the gospel of John, it's not going to say you must walk in the light consistently in your life or you will not receive eternal life. That's not what John says. John says you believe and you receive eternal life. Here John is saying, you're Christians now. You've already done that. Now it's your job to walk in the light. And as you're walking in the light, you may be tempted at some point to think, oh, well, I'm actually doing better than I really am. You may think that you're doing better than you really are. And so at that moment, you can say, well, I've got all these excuses. You can say, this isn't really a sin. You've interpreted that wrong. That's not what the Bible says. You can try to hide from the truth or you can be honest before God. And this is submitting to the authority of your father. Okay, I talk to my kids sometimes and I tell them and they'll be like, well, I don't know about that. And they want to argue. That's what can happen in our fellowship with God. It can be, it can be interrupted whenever we challenge God's authority and make excuses for our sin. And lastly, in verse 10, it says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And so in the course of our Christian walk, we can easily become Pharisees. And, and as Pharisees, not only will that damage our relationship with God, it will not remove our relationship with God. Salvation's eternal. But it can damage our relationship, and we can lose that fellowship, that intimacy with God. And it can also damage our relationship with others, right? Again, going back to where it says walk in the light. If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So no one gets along with a Pharisee. And so not only does this affect our vertical relationship between us and God, but it affects our horizontal relationship too. And so this relationship, this fellowship requires honesty and remembrance. Now, one last quote, and then we'll wrap it up. One last quote. Two, actually. Looks like I skipped one. When we're talking about our purpose, walking in the light, this quote I thought was really good. It's by Irenaeus. This guy lived two generations removed from John, okay? So he didn't know John, but he knew a guy who knew John. So the Irenaeus isn't too far down the road from when John wrote this book. He says, he, referring to Jesus, he became what we are so that we might become what he is. Now, of course, Irenaeus and any of the church fathers who make similar quotes they are not saying that we will become God in the sense that God is God. But God did, in existing in this eternal relationship of holiness and of intimacy, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, He did create us, and Jesus later became one of us, so we could imitate that, so we could have that too. And that's what it means to be an image bearer. We fulfill God's promise 
or rather uh, his purpose when he created Adam and Eve. We fulfill that purpose to be made in God's image whenever we are walking in the light, whenever we are being as he is. And lastly, last quote by John Newton. This is the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. They made a movie about him. Amazing Grace, pretty good movie. Um, He says this, I am persuaded that love and humility are the highest attainments in the school of Christ and the brightest evidences that he is our master. And that's a really, really good quote. The school of Christ. I like that. We're all part of this school and our teacher is our father and the greatest achievements that one can have in this school are having love and humility in our life. Love for, yeah, we're being homeschooled. We're being schooled by our parents. Amen to that. Yeah, we're big supporters of homeschool here, if you didn't know that. Um, but anyways, there are links on the website. we got good resources for kids on our website, too. But wrapping it up, we could just summarizing, our fellowship is metaphysical. It's based on the Trinity, and it's eternal. It's historical. It's based on evidence, eyewitness testimony. It's experiential. It's based on our faith and our walk with the Holy Spirit. It's purposeful. It means that God set us apart so we could have good doctrine, and we could walk hand in hand with him so our life is transformed practically. And lastly, our relationship with God, our fellowship requires honesty and remembrance. We have to constantly remind ourselves that we are in need of cleansing. We're not perfect. We've been saved and we've been forgiven, but God's got some work that he has to do in our lives, and he'll continue doing that work until either we die or he comes back to get us. So I hope that uh, if you're listening to this, you are blessed by it, and we're going to go eat some food. So have a great day. God bless.